Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's episode is called, When the Prophet Breaks the Law. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. Today I want to discuss, and I know it's late, and I'm sorry I'm late to the party, the Security and Exchange Commission and the charges against the LDS Church. Um, I had a couple of interviews that were really important and I wanted to get those out. So I'm late to the discussion, I apologize, but I'm really excited to do an interesting comparison today. So the discussion is going to center around the investigation and the charges against the LDS Church, but I want to compare it to the story of Daniel and the lion's den. I thought it would be interesting to look at the church, the LDS Church today, and compare it to a Bible story where the prophet also broke the law. To kind of break down some of the differences between both of these stories. Before we jump into the episode, I want to do that shameless self-plug. I'll do it as quick as I can. If this content is something that you enjoy, if you like listening to me ramble on, or you like listening to some of the guests that I brought onto the show, please consider becoming a monthly recurring donor to the podcast. A dollar, two bucks, just whatever, or a one-time donation. Whatever you can give, I greatly appreciate it. And if it's something that you're not financially able to do, no pressure, just leave a review, you know, five stars or five stars or really only five star reviews. <laughs> Share it with your friends, your family. I really appreciate uh, you guys getting the word out for me. Thank you so much. The idea that I'm looking for is to understand if there is precedent in the scriptures for the church or a prophet to break the law of the land, and then to examine whether or not this, these charges from the SEC and the actions of the church over the last 20 years would fit into that same category of an acceptable breaking, an acceptable motive to break the laws of the land. I'm not going to really cover the historical background of the book of Daniel. Well, maybe I'll say a couple of couple of things here. It's not included in the section of the Old Testament with the rest of the prophets. This I'm taking from the Bart Ehrman blog, and I'll, I'll read a quote here. The composition of the Old Testament, the prophets section, had already been solidified and accepted as scripture when the book of Daniel was written. And so over time, the book of Daniel was accept, ex, eventually accepted as scripture and then put in near the end of the Old Testament, uh, the version of it that we, that uh, the Christians use. So the composition of the book of Daniel most probably happened during the Maccabean revolution. This is like 160 uh, BCE. The writings in it are 
most scholars, when they read this and they, they study this, they don't look at it as a historical document of things that actually happened. It was written much too late for that to be the case. The book of Daniel is considered to be one of the earliest apocalyptic books that we have. Uh, an apocalyptic book is, is um, like a genre of writing. Typically, they are visions of the end times or visions of, of future events that will happen revealed to the writer through a heavenly visitor or an angel. The other major uh, apocalyptic literature in the Bible as we have it today is the book of Revelation and also Matthew 24. And then there's some others. First um, Enoch, 4th Ezra, Apocalypse of Abraham. You've got the Apocalypse of Peter. There's a bunch of them that didn't make it into the canon that were also apocalypses. I'm going on a tangent. I apologize. We're going to go. We're going to jump back into the subject. Many of us are familiar with the story of Daniel, so I'm not going to dive too deep into this. I just want to read a couple of passages to refresh our memories as, as we make this comparison between Daniel breaking the law and the LDS church today breaking the law. Daniel 6 starts out kind of starts out describing the scenario. He is one of the advisors to King Darius. There's a bunch of other people also working as advisors. And Daniel, being a man of God, upstanding, righteous, great guy, he sets himself apart and Darius favors him and really relies on his advice. And in verse 4, these other administrators, they're trying to find fault with Daniel to make it so that he's out of favor with the king and they can't find anything. So they devise this plan. Verse 5, finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it, be some, unless it has something to do with the laws of his God. Verse 6, so the administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an, issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown in the lion's den. Darius agrees. He puts it into writing. He sends it out. We know the story. Daniel's caught praying. He gets thrown in the lion's den because he was praying to his God when there was a decree that for those 30 days, you were not allowed to pray to anybody other than King Darius. Daniel's thrown in the lion's den. King Darius doesn't want to do it, but he does eventually throw him in. And he says, in verse 16, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. They bring a stone, they close it, and we know the rest of the story. The lions do not eat Daniel while he's in the den. Why bring this up at all? I think this is a fascinating comparison to the modern church today. And it highlights one of the problems that I don't think a believer could reconcile easily with these SEC allegations or charges against the LDS church. Comparing this story, Daniel is told here that he cannot pray to God. He cannot pray and observe his religious practices, but he can, he does them anyway. I want to jump over to doctrine and covenants to see how maybe the church might explain why it was okay for Daniel in this situation to break the laws of the land. So doctrine and covenants 134 verse four says, we believe that religion is instituted of God and that men are amenable to him and to him only. 
for the exercise of it, unless their religious opinions prompt them to infringe upon the rights and liberties of others. But we do not believe that human law has a right to interfere in prescribing rules of worship to bind the, conscious, the consciences of men, nor dictate forms for public or private devotion. That the civil magistrate should restrain crime, but never control conscience, should punish guilt, but never suppress the freedom of the soul. So Doctrine and Covenants 134.4 explicitly says that it is an overstep for a government to dictate the, the way a, an individual can worship. Daniel, clearly breaking a law and getting punished for it, but it is a law that infringes upon his rights to have a relationship with God or his rights to worship however his conscience dictates him. And so this is a case where it would be acceptable according to the LDS doctrine, for a prophet to break the law. For a prophet to say, look, these laws are wrong. I'm not going to follow them. And be a good example of it. This is him standing for his rights as an individual. Cool. Great. Now, <laughs> let's compare that to this SEC, to the SEC charges against the LDS church. When the LDS church here has broken the laws of the land, is there any sort of scriptural justification for the, for the behaviors that they have done? I can't pretend to know what the motives are of the LDS church, but we can look at their actions. And again, you know, the, the story of Daniel, Daniel probably wasn't a real person. I can't pretend to know what his motives were, but we can infer from the story that maybe that his personal rights to observe his religion were being infringed. And perhaps he was justified in breaking this law. And in the story, God protects him, and it's a happily ever after. How does that differ from the SEC charges today? I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission from their press release on February 21st of 2023, just so we can get a little context of exactly what happened. The SEC's order finds that from 1997 through 2019, Ensign Peak failed to file Forms 13F, the, th the forms on which investment managers are required to disclose the value of certain securities that they manage. According to the order, the church was concerned that disclosures of its portfolio, which by 2018 grew to approximately $32 billion, would lead to negative consequences. To obscure the amount of the church's portfolio, and with the church's knowledge and approval, Ensign Peak created 13 shell LLCs, ostensibly with locations throughout the U.S., and filed Forms 13F in the names of these LLCs rather than in Ensign Peak's name. The order finds that Ensign Peak maintained investment discretion over all relevant securities, that it controlled the shell companies, and then directed nominee business managers, most of whom were employed by the church, to sign the commission filings. The shell LLCs form 13F misstated, among other things, that the LLCs had sole investment and voting discretion over the securities. In reality, the SEC's order finds Ensign Peak retained control over all investment and voting decisions. For me, the key statements here are, with the church's knowledge and approval, the church's knowledge and approval. 
what does it does it mean by that? With the prophet, the first presidency, the quorum of the twelve apostles, with their approval, they hid this money. The concern is also stated here very clearly. The church was concerned, and I'm gonna skip, I'm gonna skip the commas about how much it grew. I'm just going to read the statement, the the sentence, as it would sound without any commas, the additional context of how much it grew. The church was concerned that disclosure of its portfolio would lead to negative consequences. So I'll read the full sentence so you can hear what the, what the full sentence was. But according to the order, the church was concerned that disclosure of its portfolio, which by 2018 grew to approximately $32 billion, would lead to negative consequences. Church leadership, the prophet, was concerned that if the world at large knew just how much money they had, there would be negative consequences. This was their motive for creating these shell companies. The church was concerned with how the world would see them if they knew just how wealthy they were. And from that motive, they broke the law. And failed to file these forms, 13F. And and not only that, it says that for these shell companies, they filled in that these shell companies were managing this these funds when it was actually being fully managed by Ensign Peak. So Ensign Peak retained full control over all the investments and voting decisions. So these shell companies were created solely to make it look like Ensign Peak had less money. In the story of Daniel, right here, this is the part where Daniel is caught (laughs) breaking the law, doing what he's not supposed to. And Darius says, look, pray to God, maybe he'll help you out, but I've got to follow through with this. So here we can relate the SEC commission, the SEC charges to that story of Daniel. Look, the church was caught red handed. They've been lying. They've been obfuscating how much money they have, and now they've been charged with breaking the law. Now, did they pray to get out of it? Comparing this directly to the Daniel story, this is where Russell M. Nelson would get down on his knees, pray to God, say, look, I broke the law, but I was doing it for the church. I was lying for the Lord. Please protect me in this. But this is not what happens. Later on in this article, so here's what it says. Ensign Peak agrees to settle the SEC's allegations that it violated Section 13F of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 and Rule 13F-1 thereunder by failing to file Forms 13F and for misstating information on these forms. The church agreed to settle the SEC's allegation that it caused Ensign Peak's violation through its knowledge and approval of Ensign Peak's use of the Shell LLCs. The church obfuscated this money, got a slap on the wrist, a fine, and the prophet and the church leadership, when it says the church here, it's referring to church leadership that's making these decisions. Russell M. Nelson, the First Presidency, they agreed to settle Because they broke the law. In my mind, there is a fascinating 
distinction between the story that I referenced earlier of Daniel breaking the law to pray to God and to express his religion when he was being controlled in the story to not be able to pray for a month. Comparing that to this, where the laws that were broken had nothing to do with any sort of religious freedom. These were laws that dictate how information is disclosed and how these, these forms that they're supposed to file are done in a proper way. And the church intentionally misled the Securities and Exchange Commission when they filed these forms. They lied to protect the good name of the church, if you will. If this were written in scripture, if we are going to make a book of Russell M. Nelson that talks about his time as the prophet of the church and this story about the SEC charges against the church, make it in there. How much different does that look compared to the story of Daniel? The key distinction between these two examples of breaking the laws is that one is motivated by a desire to express someone's religious ideas and beliefs. And the other, the other is motivated by maintaining the good name of the church. So the question I, I want to ask to maybe leave off on this discussion is, why does God need the prophet to lie to maintain the good name of the church? Does knowing the truth about the funds held by the church in their portfolios, does knowing that tarnish the name of God or the name of the church? The LDS church has not had financial transparency for a very, very long time. Now, one of the things that I strongly believe in is that all churches should be taxed and then any charitable donations, any service that they do would be a deduction from those taxes made on churches. That would require complete transparency from religious institutions on what money they're receiving and what they're doing with this money. It's a recurring story. You see it over and over again of different pastors or different different churches that have embezzled the money. They take these donations and they use it for different things. It's in the movies. These stories are, are in the newspapers all the time. There was a recent movie two years ago, The Eyes of Tammy Faye with Andrew Garfield and Jessica Chastain that followed the Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. These are, these are recurring things that happen. It, to me, it illustrates how important financial transparency is for these institutions that have historically mismanaged their money. Going along with some of the questions that I was asking just a minute ago before I went on this tangent, why does God need money? And I'm, I'm not saying that to, to infer that the answer is that God doesn't or that the church doesn't need money. The church has to pay for electricity and water rights, and they have to buy land for for facilities. I'm not trying to say that there are zero expenses. What I'm trying to say is that without any financial transparency, we are going to continue to run into 
issues like this in the future. I want to compare this to a New Testament passage from the lips of Jesus. And this is Matthew 19, verse 21. It's a famous verse. It relates perfectly to the allegations against the church. Matthew 19, verse 21. Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. For as hard as I've looked, I haven't found any passages. I haven't found any quotes from Jesus where he talks about forming shell companies and obfuscating money so that the followers of Christ don't find out just how much money that Christ has. The leaders of the church are not theologians. They are businessmen and they are running a business. All the evidence, all of their behaviors point to that conclusion. They are running a business. They are running this church as if it were a business. Thanks for listening to the episode today. Quick tangent. (laughs) I'm going to throw this in at the end. I just finished watching The Last of Us. The finale aired a couple weeks ago. It's one of my favorite video games. And the storytelling is just superb. If you're looking for a good show, go check out The Last of Us. I will say content warning. It's really graphic. There's strong language. But it is an emotional journey. One of my favorite aspects of The Last of Us series, both the first and second video game and now this show, is they intentionally flip standard ideas on their head. Concepts such as the hero going through and killing a bunch of bad guys to save the day. And they, they tell the same story that's told through, through so many other mediums, but they tell it through a lens that makes you really uncomfortable with the reality of that sort of a story. And I love it. Anyway, great storytelling. Go check it out. It's an awesome show. The next week or so, I want to stay on this topic of the SEC charges against the church. And there's a lot more that I want to flesh out and and, uh, discuss um, in the next couple of weeks. So if you've got any comments, if you've got any thoughts about it, reach out, send me a message through YouTube, Facebook, or to my email. And let's start the conversation because I think there's so much that we can unpack. And the thesis for the these next couple episodes is that last statement that I just made. The LDS Church is a business. It is being run and operated as if it were a business. Be sure to comment. Be sure to to engage in the discussion and all as I do sometimes I'll highlight some of my favorite comments or some of my favorite interactions that we've had through these discussions so wherever you find yourself out there (laughs) chasing a toddler that you're trying to potty train trying to make sure that she gets to the toilet so that you don't have to clean the floors again I hope that you have an excellent day yes my wife and I are potty training our youngest right now